0: Well, our next speaker returns for us from sharing Saturday morning all about oxidated stress and how living a long, healthful life is possible with the right choices. He is a biochemical pharmacologist in the School of Medical Sciences, as well as associate professor at the Sydney Adventist Hospital Clinical School. I want to invite you to put your hands together now and welcome back Dr. Ross Grant. Well good morning everybody.
1: I mean even looking out over the, the, uh, the audience here, I can't really see anybody because of the lights. But uh, it's great to see, it looks like it's pretty, uh, pretty full and it's great to see that on a Sunday morning, particularly a Sunday morning in paradise. So what we looked at yesterday, we, we asked the question first of all, is it possible to live forever? Can we get a pill, can we get a potion? Is somebody gonna be able to give us something that we can actually live forever? And it turned out that that was going to be pretty much impossible. At a physiological level, it really is impossible. But then we looked at the possibility, is it possible for us to live healthy and well for a long time? And that's what we all want, and it doesn't matter what age that starts. And the interesting thing, particularly uh, working with students on a regular basis, I noticed that there are an awful lot of younger people that have actually a lot of problems. And uh, I think we can clear up a lot of those if we make some good choices when it comes to how we look after ourselves. So let's have a look. Today we're going to have a look at the impact of lifestyle choices on our state of health and disease. Now, there's a little bit of science in here, so I hope you're going to be OK with that. It doesn't matter. It's not an exam. You can just sit back and relax, and if, it, uh, if you have a question, you can always ask me later. In fact, I think we've got a bit of a question time afterwards, so make sure that you put down some of your questions, and uh, uh, we can hopefully address those from the front. So this is what we did the other day. We just looked at uh, the idea that we've got, uh, you know, our body made up of organs, tissues, cells, and that in fact, if we keep damaging, the faster we damage our cells and are unable to clear away some of that debris, that that actually ages. Because we talked about yesterday how our bodies pretty much are renewed every ten years, and we talked about different cells, uh, different cell types. You know, our skin cells lasting around about two weeks to a month our gut cells lasting about four days, our blood cells, at least our red blood cells, lasting about four months, cheek cells about seven days, and then we went on from there. Uh, Can you remember, does anybody remember how long our fat cells last for? Nine years, yeah, most people remember that one. Okay, so the thing is though, but around about 10 years or so, you've turned over pretty much all your cells. And we were thinking, well, we worked out that if you can get the cells that are making the new ones, if your new cells are the same or pretty close to the same as the last one, you're not going to age, or you'll age a lot slower. Does that make sense? But if you increase that stress, or in other words, you increase the damage, what we call oxidative stress or oxidative damage. Now, we all know about psychological stress. I'm going to mention that again in a minute. But oxidative damage, oxidative stress, will increase the ageing process. So we don't want to do that. So the two things were, can we decrease the damage to the cells in the body? And this is how we can reduce or slow ageing. And that, of course, is going to help our tissue live long, And not only, most people think of anti-aging in terms of the way we look, but it's got less to do with the way we look and more to do with the way that tissue can perform and do what it was intended to do. Does that make sense? So we want to really slow that down so that we can live healthier and do all of the things that we enjoy doing. So we want to decrease the damage we do to the cells and we want to increase the repair of those cells. What can we do in our lifestyles that help to do that now the first thing we talk about, and most people when we say the term stress, they think of psychological stress. And some people think, well, if I'm stressed all the time and you see people that are stressed, they do look like they're ageing faster, don't they? Well, it is actually having an impact. It's actually driving a lot of biochemistry that keeps its wings, like having your foot down on the accelerator and just keeping the car revering for the next 24, 48, you know, et cetera, 72 hours, and that's exactly what's happening with the body. So these mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, sleep disorders, all associated with an increase in oxidative stress. Now, I want to talk about sleep a little bit more as we get on, but particularly, how do we reduce those anxiety, depression? There's lots of different ways in which you can work towards it, but some of the key things that come out for having healthy psychology or having a healthy uh, psychological state, religious affiliation, Now for most people, particularly with uh, some of the classic particularly, and it's interesting, when people did the research on this, they were criticised because when they were publishing it, it was mostly done around Christian religions. And they said, well look, you need to have a look broader at some of the other religions. So we can't say how well the others do, but certainly, and and this particularly coming out of the US, most of it was associated with a Christian religion. And that religious affiliation was associated with being less stressed, increased resilience because you increased your social network putting family ahead of other concerns. All of us have got things that we need to be involved with, but interestingly enough, making sure that we give family priority as opposed to some of our works. Now, for people like, and I'm sure you're the same as me, uh, time is not something I have an awful lot of, and I need to really reset my priorities when it comes to putting family associations, as much as I love my family, but I've really got to try to make sure that they don't have to play second fiddle inappropriately, that is. And then people of all ages being socially active and integrated in their communities. What that means is, we've got these, you know, our Western society has done a great job of pulling out each generation and kind of separating them out from each other. But the healthiest communities and the healthiest individuals in those communities are the ones that interact, where the young ones are interacting with the older ones, interacting with the much more senior ones, and you've got that fluid exchange of experience, youth, energy, excitement, Getting those together, and often religious affiliations are going to help that, certainly broader families and extended families meeting up with, but also other community events, and that's why often our sporting events are very good at doing this as well. Making sure that we integrate across the age range. So healthy community engagement and having purpose in life promotes psychological wellness and helps to reduce a lot of that damage that's associated with poor health. So that's number one, and that's a very important one. The other one you've heard a fair bit about, and most people when they think about health are thinking about nutrition, it's a good place to start, and we talked about it yesterday, reducing those saturated fats, increasing those, increasing those fruit and veggies, and there's really good reasons why they work. Let's just have a look at it. One is that you reduce actually the calories. You're eating more food if you're having whole foods like this. You actually do tend to eat more food, but there's not as many calories in it. If you remember from yesterday, I said the more calories you put in, calories actually drive a certain pathway which you're having in excess, actually not only produces saturated fat, but also produces lots of oxidative stress. Some of you will have seen a study that we did some years ago called the ice cream study. And we actually got people to eat ice cream, and then we measured their oxidative stress levels up to four hours afterwards. And there was a significant increase in that. And yet if they ate the same calories, Coming from like avocados, so avocados are a whole food have about the same calorie density as, as ice cream, but when they ate the avocados, we saw the yes, we saw the fats go up in the blood, but we saw no change in oxidative stress. So whole foods are really the thing to get in, and it's very good for the body. I'm going to talk about proteins a little bit later on, and that might surprise some of you. Some of the things that you get from these greens, orange, red, all of those whole foods, are not just you know some good taste but you get things like, and you do particularly from the greens and some of the cabbages, etc. get some omega-3. Now, we haven't had time to talk about that, but omega-3s are really important for driving or helping to do the anti-inflammatory, whereas lots of the other stuff actually is pro-inflammatory. You want to reduce that. Then these flavonoids, carotenoids, these are all anti-inflammatory. And then you've got antioxidants. We know about the professional vitamin antioxidants, like vitamin A, E, C, etc. but also the polyphenols and carotenoids These are also very powerful antioxidants. So antioxidants are able to prevent those free radicals, that oxidative stress. So you really want to get as much of those into the body as you can as whole foods. It's not as good going to the pharmacy and spending hundreds of dollars on just getting individual bits. Get them as big groups. There's actually thousands of molecules in here, and we don't know as scientists exactly what each one of them does. But what we do know is when you get them all as a package, it seems to have a really positive effect on the body. So getting more of those into the diet, and of course with all of this sort of stuff, you get lots of these insoluble and soluble fibres. Now we're starting to learn about how important things in the gut and keeping the guts healthy. This is really just a garden of bacteria, and the thing that that garden of bacteria love to live off are these fibres. And these can do all sorts of things, you know, produce short-chain fatty acids and a number of other molecules that we're still not uh, we're still discovering. So it's important to get that fibre, and you get that, from having the whole foods. So get as much of that into the diet. The more you get that into the diet, the better you'll be off. All right, so only food can nourish the body. That's really important, so remember that one. Only food nourishes the body. I said I was gonna talk about protein briefly, and interestingly enough, protein is actually one of those things that most people think I've gotta get more in in order to get you know big muscles. Well, we found out yesterday that apparently elephants can get big muscles by just eating uh, veggies, and it's the same with us. But if you push more of the protein in the diet, what's been interesting is our results from uh, some study that was published in 2014, that taking unrestricted, now the paleo diet, popular one out there at the moment, mostly high protein, high fat, getting away from the grains, although there is some uh, 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 leafy greens and that sort of stuff in there. But notice that they found that uh, it was associated with deleterious change in the blood lipids and in fact there's been associations with the development of diabetes, even though you're losing weight. You may want to ask me some of those questions and how that works later on, but metabolically it's interesting. You can look good, but you can be unhealthy. Does that make sense? All right. so we've got to work with that. Now, what's interesting is there's some other studies that come out, not only from this group but from others, showing that protein restriction, even over the carbohydrate restriction, so we often think of reducing our calorie intake, But they're suggesting from recent studies that are coming out that actually reducing the protein may be a key to longer life, not just reducing the calories, but actually reducing the protein as well. And there is reasons because proteins are actually, you have got to work harder uh, in the metabolism with proteins. Let me tell you a little bit about calorie restriction. Now this has been around for a while, this is not the same as starvation, we're not telling you not to eat. But what we are telling you is that Calorie restriction is something that's been around for quite a long time. About the 1930s were the first studies. They showed that in rats, if you reduce their calorie intake by about 30%, these animals would live up to, you know, even 20, 30, 40% longer than the animals that ate more. Well, they wanted to do a longer study. Now, you'll be pleased to know that rats only live about two years. But we need in science, we need to get something that's a little bit closer to humans. Now, it's harder to do it in humans, although there are studies that are ongoing, but often by the time the researchers are able to collect the data, they're already dead because the person has been living so long. Now, we can do a study, and this one was done actually in, uh, in rhesus monkeys. They live around about 20 years, and what they did is they took two groups of monkeys. Well, they had them all as one group to begin with, and then they, asked, they got the animals and they let them eat whatever they liked and as much as they liked, and they calculated how much each individual monkey ate for the first three months. Then what they did is split them into two groups. One group was allowed to continue to eat whatever they like. The other group, each month, they would reduce their calorie intake by 10%. So the first month was by 10%, then the next month by another 10%, and then the next month by another 10%. And the reason why they did it 10%, 10%, 10, 10 was that the animals don't notice a 10% decrease, and you won't notice a 10% decrease either. So they didn't know there was a 10 percent, so each month they did 10 percent. So finally they were eating actually 30 percent less than their individual calorie intake, what they would have eaten if they'd had as much as they liked. And then they looked at them over the next 20 years. This is sort of an example of the unrestricted diet, and this was published back in 2009 now, and this is the 30 percent calorie-restricted diet as an example. And as they went through, they found that the animals on the calorie-restricted diet had not only reduced mortality, so 80% of the calorie-restricted animals, these ones, were still alive after the 20 years, compared to only 50% of these guys. In addition to that, there was a delayed onset of all of those age-associated diseases like cancer, diabetes, etc. and they found that 70% of these guys were free of any of the lifestyle diseases after that 20 years, but only 20% of the the other animals uh, that were on the uh, ad libitum diet. So it makes a huge difference. Now notice, and one thing I like to point out to people, is that these animals were on a vegetarian diet. So it's not just how much you eat or the types you eat, but also keeping in mind that we don't want to overeat. Let's have a look at the idea of constant, moderate physical activity. Now, some people want to exercise more, and that's fine, and if you want to train for a triathlon or for a marathon, etc., that's great, go ahead. But it's not the marathon runners, and it's not necessarily the triathlon runners that actually make it for for long life. It is that constant, moderate physical activity, keeping active. It helps to reduce the stress response, and we already talked about the fact that stress actually drives oxidative damage, so exercise helps you reset that stress. It reduces your desire for food. Now, there's not time for me to tell you about little things about the way the brain works in terms of a little place called the arcuate nucleus that actually switches on your feeding behaviour and says, I'm hungry, from signals that are associated from the gut. But when you exercise, it actually switches those pathways off a little bit. It gives you a little endorphin high. Now, you have to do enough to sort of get your face hot and do it for a little bit of exertion, and then you get that little high. It promotes now mitochondrial activity. What does that mean? It means that it actually increases. Most people will know what basal or metabolic rate is, and most people look at somebody and go, oh, they've got a fast metabolism and they've got a slow metabolism. If you want to speed up your metabolism, exercise. Now, it'll do it when you're exercising, but it also increases and your metabolism stays higher after you've exercised, because you've increased the way in which the body uses energy, so that's really positive. So it increases metabolic rate, decreases circulating fats, you want to do that, and improves insulin resistance. That happens very quickly. Increases the activity of the antioxidant enzymes, all of that is really positive. Increases the blood supply to all the different tissues. That's why people's skin look better, because we're flushing it with blood, helping to clear it. That's really positive. So exercise stimulates the body, but only food nourishes it. You've got to bring those two together. Really important. I love this statement. It's absolutely impossible to out-exercise a bad diet. Remember, nutrition stimulates, Exercise, sorry, (laughs) nutrition is nourishing, exercise stimulates. So it's good to have stimulation, but you need to nourish. If you just exercised on a bad diet, are you putting your body under more stress? You are, because you're not actually giving it the nourishment it needs to handle all of that extra stress. Alright, what about sleep? Major feature was associated with longevity uh, was three major features in sleep. The maintenance of slow-wave sleep in the oldest individuals. In other words, if you get a nice, relaxing sleep, then that's really important for older individuals. The existence of strictly regular sleep patterns. So in other words, you're in bed by ten, you're up by six, you're in bed by ten, you're up by six. That's the type of thing, not going up and down and stretching that. Remember how I talked yesterday about the importance of biorhythms and how the body, is when you're asleep, is when it's doing all of that clearing away the debris? It does a few other things which I'll mention in a minute and you get a better lipid profile as a result of that. So what does sleep actually do? What are you actually doing when you have sleep? And I should say, why isn't caffeine a substitute for it? This is why. Because during sleep, the brain actually starts to sort things out, and it actually helps you to memorise things better, it consolidates information, and it sorts out from the day all of the things, whether or not it's important or not, so that the next day you get up and hopefully you've prioritised it in the right way. If you don't get sleep, that priority is missing and often you will prioritise the wrong thing, and certainly you'll be more stressed. Memories better after you sleep, feel better and... I just should point out, particularly to those younger people who are still studying, or anybody who's still studying, if you want to study, there's not really much point in studying way late into the night, losing out on sleep, and then trying to do it again the next day. It's far better for you to study well, then, and make sure you have exercise breaks, and then go and sleep, get a good night's sleep, and then get up the next day. If you use caffeine, caffeine doesn't help your brain do that at all. It actually reduces blood flow to the prefrontal cortex and at the very least doesn't help increase the stress response and probably the performance is worse. So you feel better, you have resistance to anxiety, everybody knows how grumpy you feel if you don't have sleep. It literally, there's a physiological reason for it. Improves your weight. If you're not sleeping well, people tend to put on weight and there's a variety of reasons for that. One is that you actually don't metabolically function as well and you've got higher stress levels, but you also end up eating more for comfort food and eating of those foods that are high sugar, high fat. Reduces oxidative stress, promotes tissue and muscle growth. We talked about that. Removes away the cellular debris. All of that's important. So what are the key points here? Immortality pill, longevity. Uh, you're not going to get an immortality pill, but longevity is definitely possible. Uh, psychosocial ce- uh, health... Vegetable-based diet, these are all important to have. Regular exercise, sleep, eliminate smoking. How do they actually produce disease? I want to just set it up for a minute. Nine out of ten people, if you are typical, will die of a lifestyle-associated disease. And the biggest killer is actually cardiovascular disease. Now, you don't have to. Let me just point out with it with cardiovascular disease. What we do in lifestyle translates into the shift in the biochemistry that produces the disease. We've talked about oxidative stress, talked about ageing. I won't mention much more about this one. It was just a study that we found that after the age of 60, in fact, you need to live better than what you did when you were younger because you accumulate oxidative damage faster. So age, high-calorie, poor-nutrient foods, lack of sleep, reduced exercise, caffeine intake, alcohol intake, smoking, all of these play a big role in the biochemistry that ultimately produces things like heart disease. Now, we know that heart disease increases with age, that's fine. Uh, how does the oxidative stress produces that cardiovascular disease? So all those lifestyle habits shift that oxidative stress, increases as we get older. We know heart disease increases as a percentage as we get older. How does heart disease start? Well, it starts off as a little fatty streak, then it starts to develop into this mature plaque, Notice that I've got down here how many decades? Three to four. People are starting with this even in their 20s and even younger. We've actually found it in uh, some adolescents with certain cardiovascular risk factors. Then you get to a point where what's called the clinical horizon and what happens from there, either that plaque ruptures and therefore forms a clot and blocks it off, or it completely occludes the artery and boom, unfortunately, there's the heart attack or stroke. So, how does that happen? Now, this looks like a complex slide. Let me walk you through it a little bit. This is inside the blood. So this is inside the middle of the artery. There's the blood up there. There's some red blood cells, some white blood cells. This is inside the artery wall. So this is in the wall of the artery. And notice that cholesterol here, Cholesterol is going to play a role. But you may not know that 25% of people, or 25 to 50% of people who develop heart disease have a low or normal cholesterol. So how is it that that can happen? Well, it's for this reason. It's the free radicals that are doing damage to the cholesterol. It's the free radical damage, or the oxidised cholesterol, that are the ones that are actually what we call pro The body tucks them underneath the, blood cell, uh, underneath the uh, endothelial cell because it wants to get rid of them. The immune system gets called in, and the immune system produces free radicals like superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, etc., and then it tries to get rid of it. And that's fine if it's only happening once a week, once a month, but what if it's happening on a regular basis? If it's happening on a regular basis, you've got the immune system, inflammation, and oxidative stress, and you get this cycle happening so that it builds up and builds up until eventually, so you can't clear it away as fast as the damage is occurring. Is that making sense? If you can start to clear it away faster than the damage is occurring, what would happen? You would reverse it. That's the logic. Let's see if it actually happens. So formed so this mature plaque, or that atherosclerosis, repeated inflammatory oxidative damage at a rate faster than the body's capacity to repair it. And when do you do it? we would argue that the stimulus is really what you have at every meal. So if you're doing it every meal, breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, nightcap before you go to bed, I mean, generally, a lot of people will do that, and that's why we end up with this significant increase. Can you reverse it? Well, there is one study, or at least there's a few now, where they reduced calories, increased phytonutrients, decreased inflammation, and they actually did reverse atherosclerosis. This is what it looked like, this is one of the descending arteries coming over the heart, and you can see how blocked that is. Within 32 months of a plant-based diet without any cholesterol-lowering medication, they showed profound improvement. Completely open. Now, of course, you need to be managed because if you've got a heart that's blocked like this, anything can go wrong at any time. But why not not let it get in that direction? Why not reduce it before it even gets close to that? So, the keys here, eating plant-based rich foods, plenty of dark-coloured fruits and veggies, maximum nutrients, reduces oxidative stress, reducing calorie intake, 10 to 30%. 10% is the equivalent of not having a Mars bar. Now, I know that gets recorded, but that's about right. So, um, it could be any foods. I'm not saying uh, anything intrinsically wrong there. I'm just saying it's got lots of calories in it. Exercise moderately. Get adequate sleep, seven to eight hours tends to be what uh, seems to keep coming out. Cultivate good psychosocial relationships, particularly across the the age range. Get some older friends. Make sure you engage with some younger people. And adopting these principles will place you well on the way to living a healthy, fulfilling, longer life. That's a great place to start. Now, I'm going to start... I'll, I'll just put up one other slide, and I want to give you... A couple of points to ponder in here. So we've identified, first of all, that from a physiological point of view, unlikely that you'll ever, in fact, I can tell you, it'll be impossible, that you will actually ever get a pill or any kind of regimen that will keep you physiologically living forever because is there any possibility that we will actually stop those ageing processes or perfectly repair it? There's not. There really isn't you can spend your money on it. If you're going to spend a lot of money, let me know. I'll see if I can put something up for you, and at least we might be able to put the money in the right direction. But the, the thing is that when it comes... So our body is actually being renewed all the time, isn't it? We said every 10 years or so, we're we our cells, except for some, a couple of long-lived cells, but mostly we're being renewed. Let me point this through to you, know I hope it's It catches on some people. Keeping the organism alive forever is most likely not possible and may not in fact be the key to living forever. Now what does that mean? The physical elements that make up a person are always changing, they're always being renewed. That's true, isn't it? And yet we feel we're the same person. People can still recognise us, we still remember people, they remember us. Only a person's character or personality continues in spite of the constant turnover of physical parts. Do you get that? So even though the cells are all turning over, we still have our character that's living from year to year and we can improve that. So I'm gonna leave you with this thought. Maybe we should focus here on the character to find the genuine solution to immortality. I'll leave you with that. Okay.
0: Uh, Ross, I just invite you to come back out. We've got a lot of questions, and thankfully, we do have uh, a bit more time for this, so you're going to be on the hot spot here for a few okay. minutes. Um, first question, is the sleep early, wake early principle true for everyone?
1: You know, for a long time, they were thinking that this is not the case, that, uh, in fact, it doesn't matter when you sleep, that uh, as long as you get that eight hours, it works well. What I can say, there's been some pushback on that to suggest that even people who might be a late sleeper, now my wife is one of those, she's more of an artistic person, you know, she's got the right brain, I tend to have the left brain, and uh, together we, uh, I think it makes a good group, but the the thing is, the, the more recent studies have come out to suggest that even for people who tend to want to go to bed later, and get up later, that they do better if they actually can work out going to bed before midnight. There's something about getting to bed earlier that you actually get a rise in things like melatonin. The biochemistry seems to like it if you can do that. Now, that can be, I think, uh, when we look at all of this together, that probably as long as we can get into a very steady biorhythm so that we are genuinely getting our slow wave sleep, we are genuinely allowing our body to do all the things that it needs to do when it's, when it's sleeping, and then waking up at a regular time during the day, then I think that that probably will do it for everybody. But the trouble is when you are a later person, you tend to get disturbed by people getting up early in the morning. I know I get up early in the morning, and you know, if I'm going down for a surf, I like to say goodbye to my wife, because it may be the last time. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot more shark attacks around there. No, I'm only yeah. joking. Um, But, uh, you know, and she appreciates that, but, you know, another couple of hours would have been good for her. Um, And I think maybe that's where a lot of the problem is coming in. But, yes, maintaining those good biorhythms and, generally speaking, getting to bed earlier. Look, the ideal some people will talk about is being at around about nine, between nine and ten. And so you're getting up around about five, six in the morning. Uh, And the key thing, too, is that if you're not eating uh, too late at night... So if you're eating, you should finish eating about three hours... Before you go to sleep, I just feel like I need to repent right now. (laughs) Okay, it makes a big difference, and I know for busy people, it's often the way that people will actually eat later at night, and they're they're working away, and obviously nibbling on something, and even drinking things, particularly caffeine. Uh, So you really need to stay away from that, so that your body is able to get into a state where there's nothing left in the tummy. Mm. It's done its it's done its work, Mm. and then you can actually get into that rest and repair. Otherwise, you're not actually getting there. Very helpful. What about eating different
0: foods for different blood types?
1: Ah, look, that's, that's been popular and it's been out there for a while. Um, and I do get this question on a relatively regular basis. There is nothing, in terms of the way this is presented, yes, there are different foods that do fit with different persons, but on the basis of blood type, uh, that's a broad generalisation that's popularised by people without a lot of strong evidence to support it. Uh, so individuals will go, oh look, I, you know, I'm such a blood type and I enjoy having my meat because of that. Um, but if you take it across the board, in terms of the evidence to support that,
0: it's not there. Okay. Um, are there certain healthy foods that we shouldn't mix together in a meal?
1: Yeah, and individuals can actually enjoy, and and some people can't eat lentils, I think, broadly than than eating other things, and that's kind of different, so we have to find the good foods that are good for us. Um, And I know I'm not answering that question directly yet, but I'm just setting it up that we are different and there are different foods that, you know, I love lentils, but there are people who I know that can't eat them. And that's often affected by the microbiome, and the microbiome itself and your particular pattern of microbiome can be affected somewhat by your physiology. So we're learning more about that. But about, what about mixing some foods? Some people, and it's talked about you know, not mixing things like fruits and vegetables, for example, or things that have got protein. So if things are taking longer to digest compared to other things, putting things that uh, uh, you know, are going to take you probably three or four hours to digest with something that should only take you about uh, 20, 15, 20 minutes, potentially you can end up with uh, you know, delaying, and therefore there is elements that can cause that to actually be a little bit irritating. So, you know, fruits and veggies with, with uh, some, some animal protein probably won't go well, at least with the fruits. Uh, sometimes fruits with some of the uh, uh, other products, particularly some of the... Uh, the now, I'm not an advocate for having cheeses, but they can take an awful long time to, to digest, and so you can get some irritate, I- irritation there. I always chuckle a little bit when I see Friday afternoons on, in some of our academic committees, and they'll often have wine and cheese. And, uh, you know, with a little bit of fruit on the side, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, there's almost nothing in that that's actually healthy for you, um, in spite of what people
0: suggest about the, uh, the red-coloured grapes and... Uh, anyway. All right. Thank you. Uh, we hear a lot about weight loss. What is the healthy way to gain weight?
1: Good question. Depends <coughs> on what the issue is for why you haven't gained weight. And let me just make a... I'll revert back, first of all, just because people talk about weight loss, and I guess uh, a way I'd like to sort of cover off on weight loss first before I talk about weight gain. In terms of weight loss, when I talked about the, the study on the macaques and that there was only, you know, they took 10% away per, uh, per month, that's a great way for anybody wanting to reduce their calorie intake. Because you won't really notice that 10% when it comes to you feeling hungry and, and that type of thing. So it's a good way of being able to reduce the weight, taking it off for a while, uh, taking it off over a period of time as opposed to crash dieting, I guess most people would appreciate Crash dieting is just going to... Yes, you might lose the weight for that wedding or for that you know, particular beach outing that you wanted to go to, but unfortunately, you're also likely to put it on. Yeah. Whereas if you take it off slowly and your body actually adjusts that, there's really good reasons why that works. Um, uh, you've got some little molecules called leptin, which are actually produced by fat cells, and uh, you might uh, uh, want to sort of uh, complain about this to the maker, but... You pretty much your body likes to keep you at about the size you are now, so it doesn't want you to get fatter. It doesn't want you to get skinnier. Now, if you happen to say, "Well, I need to lose a few," there's a little molecule called leptin that, when you start losing a few um, kilos, it's going to start screaming to the brain, "Ah, we're in a you know this is this is terrible. We're losing weight. Try and eat more so that we can put that back on." So when you do, you can do that. If you lose, take ten percent away, that's actually not going to scream as loudly, so you won't have a problem. So you'll actually do it by 10%. Now, putting weight back on. What's the issue with, uh, with how you would put weight back on? Generally, the problem is, is um, and it, it can happen often with older people, and there are different conditions that are associated with weight loss. So this is a much more complex question because it would really depend on what the cause is for, first of all, was it a weight loss and therefore trying to regain that weight, or is it somebody that's always been thin? and therefore wants to put on a few more pounds and keep it there because they feel a little bit frail? Is it an older person, or is it a younger person? And it makes a difference in all of those. What I can say is that we probably need to look for what the underlying cause for why that weight is low in the first place. And if it's malabsorption, we need to address that. That malabsorption can be from a few different things. It may be the types of foods that are being eaten, so we'd need to address that. There's nothing wrong with fats and sugars. And I talked about... um, Uh, things like avocados have almost the same amount of saturated fat as an ice cream. But when you put the avocado in as a whole food, you're getting lots of phytonutrients in there as well. So there's, you know, the creator didn't mind putting things that have got fats and sugars, but he put it and he packaged it so that it's not going to do you damage. So some people might go, oh, you know, I need to eat only healthy foods and therefore I'm going to stay away from the nuts and the avocados and all of that sort of thing because there's lots of calories there. Well, no, Um, there's actually some yeah, on a number of ways in which it's, it's good to get you get whole foods. So I'm sorry I can't answer that specifically for whoever that wrote that question, but you can come and talk to me later and maybe point Absolutely. you in the right direction.
0: Absolutely. Uh, one more question, I think. What is the best
1: type of exercise? Depends on the person. The best type of exercise is the one that you enjoy, and it really is. <laughs> yeah. It really is. I mean, some people, like, I like explosive sports, so I like surfing, squash. Um, cycling is pretty good because I get to cycle and then rest and cycle and then rest. If you ask me to do you know, a, a, a 10K jog, I'll make it, but I won't enjoy it, Yeah. you know, and yet I know people who absolutely love it, and mm-hmm. they'll chat to you the whole way and just go, don't talk to me, I'm concentrating. <laughs> so you, you really just yeah. want to do things that, that you enjoy, and quite honestly, it's not like you have to drag it out for half an hour, you can do things that, you know, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, I'll just say one quick little thing, uh, I know when I was uh, spending most of my time at the university and I had my my, my desk on one floor, I could have printed to the printer right beside me, but I knew I needed to get up and move more. So I actually printed to the printer that was one or two floors, I think it was only one floor up, but it at least made me go up and down those stairs a number of times a day. And so doing things that are going to make you move, I think is really important, and keeping that constant. So you want to make sure that you've at
0: least got about half an hour nice. within there daily. 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 Uh, Dr. Ross Grant will be available for questions afterwards. We've had a wonderful time having you here at Prophetica. Would you put your hands together and just thank them? Thank you very much. Here you go. Thank you very much.